privilege to be here today at Living Hope. We thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this day of worship. And uh, we just ask that you open the eyes of our hearts today uh, and, and be ready for anything that you have for us. We praise your most holy name in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, uh, may the peace of the Lord be with you. So why don't you uh, take a few moments and pass the peace amongst yourselves. Was that after? Oh, never mind. Don't do that. Yes, we're gonna, we'll pass that piece in just a moment. Yes, I did in the wrong order, didn't I? That's okay. All right. Well, you know what we're going to do? I think we're going to praise the Lord and sing a few songs. Yes, How about sir. that? That's much better. Awesome. If you are willing and able, please stand and join us as we sing. Mitch, Joe's not on. <laughs>
amen and amen. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine. Glory to God in the highest, and peace to people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you again for having us here together. Lord, I, I find it a great privilege to be here and to be able to share from Job today. Uh, many of us have experienced deep loss and deep hurt in our lives. And your word has something to tell us. It has something to, to give us. And Lord, may we all find healing in this message today. Lord, I, if I could be selfish, help me get through this one. This is a tough one. So, Lord, I, I thank you. I praise your name in the highest. I thank you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, may the peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. Take a few moments and pass the peace amongst yourselves. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you. Uh, if you'd like to connect with us, you can fill out one of those green cards uh, in the back and put it in the box. Or you can connect online at livinghope.info connect. We would love to hear from you. We have a few announcements. Definitely stay after service because we're having breakfast. All right, so that is the most important announcement. Free breakfast in between the services. Do not forget. Also, there's this really great thing they've been doing. Uh, so uh, on July 15th, 9 a.m. to noon, right here in the parking lot, we have people that come and they fix people's bikes and they give bikes away. They have given away dozens and dozens of bikes. So if you have a bike that you'd like to donate, bring it. If you need a bike, come and get one. It's a really, really great thing. Uh, always Unity Cafe, uh, Fridays 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock, the recovery group at 4.30, and dinner at 5.30. So I guess that's probably it for the announcements. Am I missing anything? Any other announcements? No. Great. It's really strange um, how God works sometimes. I'm doing a sermon on Job. Um, and kind of like... Right, I'm kind of going through something in my life that's relevant, and I'll explain. Um, so my mom passed away December 13th. Yeah, talk about a, a dreary sermon, I know. But, um, and uh, today is General Assembly, I think, for the Church of the Nazarene. So all the good Nazarenes are at General Assembly. So they're scrambling for anyone to come in here and do this, so... Here I am. And, uh, of course, Job is one of my favorite books. So when Pastor Rich asked me, I mean, I'd do it if I didn't like it. But I was like, yeah, oh, Job, I was really, really excited about it. But um, I didn't realize at the time, and this is kind of like the healing sometimes that the Bible brings into your life. I didn't really know that I needed to be in this book until I started preparing the sermon. Then it hit me like, Oh boy, Jason, you are actually like going through some stuff maybe, and this might have something to say to you. Um, those who know me know I'm a church history dork. Uh, I was going to be an ecclesiastical historian. I know, really exciting stuff. And um, 
So I always think in those terms. I love the history of the church. Um, so uh, there's this guy named Papias of Hierapolis, and he is what's called an apostolic father. He was born about the year 30, died about the year 120, so I'm sorry, 60, so about 30 years after Christ. And uh, he considered himself someone who passed on the oral tradition of the church. He wanted to make sure that everyone was aware of this oral tradition. Fast forward to one of the greatest historians of the church, Eusebius, in the fourth century, this great church historian, thought Papias was actually stupid. So I'm going to play the role of Papias today. Hopefully I'm not being stupid, but I'm going to try to pass on to something to you that's an oral tradition kind of in my life that I have found to be amazing. It really has transformed me. Um, so there's a guy, uh, his name is Dr. Carey. Uh, he's a Yale PhD and a professor at, um, uh, doesn't matter, at any rate, he has a whole bunch of stuff that he puts out, philosophy and religion in the West, uh, the history of Christian theology, um, he has uh, stuff on Augustine, Saint, stuff on Martin Luther, it's, it's amazing, it's amazing stuff. And he has this lecture on Job that I think is amazing. It's always stuck with me. I like to listen to lectures in my free time. My children got me to listen to music occasionally now, so I've started to do that. It's actually really good for my soul, but mostly I just like to listen to lectures. And of all the lectures that I've listened to in my life, this is the one that really grabbed me. It's probably like a top three for me. And so I really want to share this with you today because it really, really has helped me. Okay, and because I'm getting older, I have to take off my glasses to read. Isn't that terrible? My goodness. There is nothing like the biblical book of Job. It's one of the greatest poems ever written. A good man who suffers incomprehensibly and pours out his heart to God, complaining, yet afraid to complain, wishing for death, yet longing to bring his case before God and increasingly impatient with his friends who offer him good advice, good biblical advice, but they miss the point. Perhaps similar ordeals have happened many times, but how often has God answered? Yet if you expect God to explain everything, you will be disappointed. Oddly, Job does not seem disappointed by this. This is a book about a very unusual relationship, but it is a relationship that the people of Israel understand very well. Job is introduced as a good man, blameless and upright, who fears God and avoids evil. He is also rich with a big family and large herds and flocks, which is the main form of wealth at the time. So let's flash to heaven. You guys know the story well. The sons of God, angels, come around before the Lord like courtiers before the throne. One of them who likes to roam the earth, he's called the accuser, the Hasatan, uh, where we get our word Satan. The Lord brags to the accuser about Job. There's no one on earth like him, blameless and upright. The accuser reply is, uh, is pretty amazing. Does Job fear God for nothing? In effect, the accuser is saying, yes, it's true. There's nothing that I can say about him. He's blameless, he's upright, 
but you're paying him off. The question leads to a challenge. Take away Job's wealth, and he will surely curse you to your face. And we know the story. The Lord takes up the challenge. As a result, Job loses everything, his flocks, his herds, his servants, and his children. Um, we know what his response is, right? Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? The Lord takes, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Um, it, that's pretty surprising, isn't it, that he would respond like that? Um, so it continues, right? Job's response to bad news is to bless the name of the Lord. Um, things really do take a bad turn, though. Job's response to the bad news, right? So now... Um, Hence, the next time the sons of God come before the Lord, the Lord again boasts, right? He is blameless, so on, and maintains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to ruin him for nothing. The accuser, Hasatan, figures the Lord has, been, has made it too easy on Job, and he says, skin for skin, all a man has he will give for his life. Just stretch out your hand and touch his flesh and bones. Once again, the Lord takes up the challenge as a result, Job suffers from a painful and revolting skin disease. It's disgusting, right? Uh, then comes the crucial temptation of Job, right? His wife comes and says, why don't you just curse God and die, right? Um, why are you trying to maintain your innocence? Job's reply is to shut her up and accept the trouble God has given. Then comes three friends of Job to comfort him. They are so astonished by his suffering that they can do nothing more than sit silently for seven days. If you can imagine what it's like, you know, when you take a car ride and it's, it's quiet for 15 minutes, how awkward that is, right? Seven days of silence. It, it's, unbelievable. it's unbelievable. So this is something that uh, modern readers see. Um, if you are uh, maybe a studier of Christian theology, uh, you'll see there's a branch of theology called theodicy. And theodicy is basically defending God. Why does bad things happen to good people? And so a lot of modern readers read Job and try to use this text to justify why these bad things happen to good people. I think that question, uh, I don't think that this book, and this is where I'm going to depart from a lot of people that interpret this, I don't think it has anything to say about that. Because if we think that this book is justifying why bad things happen to good people, then it's because God had a bet with Satan. And that's not really a satisfactory answer, is it? Um, I'm, so I'm going to follow a, um, an interpretation of this by a theologian named Karl Barth. Uh, he thinks that something else is actually going on here. He feels that this book is actually about a relationship, that it has nothing to do with theodicy. But this book is fully about Job and his relationship with God. Um, so this story is not about the accuser, right? The Hasatan simply disappears from the story and does not even return with the closing uh, narrative. Uh, Job is not about Satan as the source of evil. The events in the opening scenes, the bet between the accuser and God, are never referred to again and play no role in the story or the arguments for the rest of the book. Job never even refers to his physical suffering or his loss of wealth and property, the loss of his children. Something else really seems to be bothering Job. So Job breaks his silence on the seventh day, not by cursing God, 
but by cursing the day of his birth. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it, is, for it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb and breast that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their masters. Job is in the deepest of despair. Job, um, so he doesn't curse God. He rejects the act of creation itself. Right? He wants not only to die, but to never have been born. And then what happens is his friends begin to comfort him. They, they're called three friends or three comforters. The theology of Job's comforters. So Job's comforters articulate the common view of the wisdom tradition in the Hebrew Bible. According to the wisdom tradition, God keeps order in the world. The good are rewarded and the evil punished. Job's words are profoundly disturbing to his friends because he longs for death. According to the wisdom tradition, the righteous should be confident that they will be rewarded and have a satisfying life. Job's friends thus urge him either to uh, comply with that, that he should actually admit his wrongdoing and that he should repent or he should um, be confident that God is going to vindicate him. But Job is not going to have any of it, you see, because Job, he's a good man that wants to die. He doesn't fit any of their categories and he grumbles against God. He insists on telling his story his own way. At first, he wishes that God would just leave him alone. This is the deepest and darkest moment of Job's despair. On one hand, Job wants God to leave him alone. On the other hand, he can't stop talking to God. And, and here's, here's where things turn for the better. As the book progresses, Job becomes more and more obsessed with speaking to God. And he begins to wish he can bring his case before God in a heavenly court, even though he he knows he can't win. He basically wants to sue God in his act of imagination. He wants to take God to court and sue him. He wishes that it could be fair, that he could have an advocate in heaven who would plead his case before God, as Job says, as a friend pleads with friend. The amazing thing about this, and think about this as a problem or the solution to the problem of evil. Job is praying crying out for this advocate in heaven that pleads with God as a friend pleads with friend. 
but the fact that he has someone in heaven who's pleading his case. It's God himself. And that's why he's in this mess to begin with. Think about that as a problem for evil. It's unbelievable and strange. Um, I was at a youth group trip one day. Um, we were having breakfast. One of those TV evangelist preachers were up there preaching the health and wealth kind of thing. And uh, I was like, oh, I would like to turn the channel. And one of the kids asked me, why would you like to turn the channel? I was like, well, I, I don't want to get into it, you know. So I didn't want to say anything. But um, if the TV evangelist is right, then the accuser is also right. Because what the accuser, the Hasatan, is saying is that, Job, you serve God for nothing. You do not serve God for nothing. You serve God because he gives you wealth. He's paying you off. And so what the TV evangelist is saying is, oh yes, if you serve God, you will get all these things. You'll get all of this money. You'll get all of these. It's going to be amazing. See, but I don't think that that guy ever read Job. You see, Job, the whole question is, does he serve God for nothing? Is he in it for God, for the love of God, or is he in it for all of these things that can be given? And so... Um, if you see one of those TV evangelists preaching that uh, pretend gospel, feel free to turn the channel and don't listen because um, it's just pretend. Job become, so Job becomes more and more obsessed with speaking to God and he begins to wish he could bring his case in front of the heavenly court, even though he knows he can't win. This is, this is so crazy. I just have to, I have to read it to you. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy, even if I summoned him and he responded. I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but he would overwhelm me with misery. As if that is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if this is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? So, so there's actually um, a high point of Job's hope, and that's in 16. 1619. Even now, and this, this is amazing, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. So somehow, even in all his misery, he knows that his advocate is in heaven, that somebody is pleading his case before God. It's just something that he must have known uh, in the spirit, I guess. Uh, and of course, the irony is, is that Job is right. He has had all along an advocate in heaven to vindicate him, right, to vindicate his righteousness. All that Job has been through, the loss of his children, the loss of all of his possessions, him becoming sick, those are not the things that he is upset the most about. Of course, he's broken by all of it. But what is he upset He's upset that, that God has turned his back on him, right? He wants to be vindicated. He wants to be vindicated with this relationship with God. He cannot let go of Job. Oh, he cannot let go of God. God cannot let go of Job. This is a relationship that is going to last. So in the end, what Job is looking for is vindication. 
And of course, it ends in such a way that is, for a lot of people, deeply uh, unsatisfying, right? In the end, Job is vindicated. Uh, he has more children. He gets his flocks back. He gets his riches back. And it kind of feels anticlimactic. So in the end, he argues and screams and yells at God. And God actually shows up. God actually shows up in this amazing, amazing verse. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footing set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when I burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments, and wrapped it in the thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it, and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come, and no further? Here is where you provide. So, of course... Now Job can't do anything but repent in sackcloth and in ashes, right? He just, you know, he has to repent for, for what he said but, uh, or, or fighting with God. But then God says what? Job, you are the one that spoke rightly about me. All of his friends that said, Job, you can't talk like this. They're giving him biblical wisdom, right? Right from the Bible. And in the end, God said, Job is the one that spoke rightly about me. Now, how could that be? I think God is saying that because Job spoke about his relationship with God. Because he didn't hide anything from God. He took his, his inner world and opened it up to God. He sat there and pleaded his heart fully, screaming, yelling, crying if you need to. And God responded. God says, Job spoke rightly about me. It's funny because um, I really needed to go through this. You know, this had to be, oh, 1998. Uh, had a death in my family, very close, someone close to me um, took their own life. It had to be 15 years before I could say their name out loud. And... Um, when my mom gave me the news for it, you know, she walked out of her room. She sat on her stairs. And I knew someone was gone. I knew it was, so it was my cousin, my first cousin who I grew up with. One was in the military, so I assumed it was him. But no, it was my other cousin, my cousin Alex. Uh, he had taken his own life. And this was right at the time, because I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. So this is right at the time when I was kind of leaving that behind and learning a lot. And so right when my world was, was shifting, for instance, by studying the Bible and studying history, you find that the doctrine of the Trinity is actually in the Bible, which was shocking to me. It shocked me. Because now you know that your childhood faith, it was wrong. So right when I'm figuring all that out, one of my closest people to me takes their own life. So, And then um, 
I started to get physically sick. I was 21 years old at the time. I was working at the Chicago Transit Authority, still am actually, and I retire next year. And uh, it was just horrible, you know. Um, and then, you know, I have a young child, married, and that's the hardest thing about not being at your best. It's not being at best, your best for your children. That's the hardest. So, one day, I'm on the train, red line, heading south back to my car. I'm in a little crew cab because I have the little skeleton key and I could, I could let myself in. And um, I started to yell at God. I started to yell, you know. I was like, God, you know, I work on, on trying to find you every day. I read every day. I pray every day. I find nothing. And if you don't do something, now I'm physically sick. If you don't do something, we're done. You and me, we're through. And at that moment, right then, I felt this great peace come over me, like a wind, you know, just was like, whoa. It was wild. Like, that is so weird, man. That's so weird. And then, of course, um, yeah, it just let me know that God was there. In our tradition, we'll call it prevenient grace, God working before you. You've crossed the line, let us say. And then, um, oh, man, it was a crazy uh, bunch of events. My brother-in-law fell 40 feet and lived the day I was supposed to move to Indiana. And we prayed that he would live. He wasn't supposed to, and he fully recovered. And I wound up going to church, and here I am, the last place I ever thought that I would be. But recently, with my mom passing, I realized that it's brought back this trauma. So when my mom died, she had a brain aneurysm. She was um, totally healthy, you know. And she got sick, and she was standing there uh, and wearing something similar when she told me about my cousin. And uh, since then, I've been struggling day by day, like my memory and things. And the thing is, it's funny because I'm shuffling my papers around. I'm not nervous. I never get nervous. It's just that I can't really... I've been trying to put in the same fan in my bathroom, and I've been an electrician for 20 years for like two months. Yeah, it's like a genuine trauma has, has hit me, you know. But this is the difference now than before. The difference now is that I know that the Lord is with me. See, I, I know that. I know that I will come out on the other side. I know that that there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. And that there's something to be learned in all of this. Um, I had no idea, you know, I had no idea that this was even really happening until I, I dug into this, into Job again. And I'm just thankful that uh, I could come here and, and struggle through this today, you know, with, with people that I know care about me and people that I love.
It's the hardest, uh, yeah, it's the hardest sermon I've, I've ever had. I've done 40 sermons in my life. I've never had one this difficult. And so I guess what I really want to say to, to everyone here, the thing about Job is he never walked away. He never walked away in his pain, in his suffering, in his loss. He kept arguing with God, kept yelling at God. Even, is that the most perfect situation? No, but you know what's worse? Walking away. Never walk away. Through his screaming, through his pain, through his sickness, he never walked away. I want to encourage all of you. I'm probably uh, a lot like you. Most of us here have endured our fair share of tragedy, haven't we? It's how it goes. That's life. It's what it is. But I want you to know the Lord is real, that he walks with you in that tragedy. That you can come like Job, right, in this vulnerability. I didn't want to give this sermon today. I could have just said, I forgot about Job and did another one. You know, Pastor Rich is cool. He wouldn't have said anything about it. And then I could have done a far better job and I could have felt better about what I was doing. But this is not how things work. This is not how the Holy Spirit works. Sometimes the Spirit asks for us to lay it bare. Sometimes we're asked to be vulnerable. And so today, um, I hope that I have encouraged somebody. I hope that you never forget. Don't walk away. Scream, yell, cry. Do whatever you have to do, but never walk away. In the end, Job is vindicated, not because his flocks are returned, not because he has more children, he can't replace the children that he lost, but he's vindicated by God himself. He knows that his Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer lives. I guess in closing, all I can say is this. Um, there's this historian He's a British historian. Um, his name's Tom Holland, but he's not Spider-Man. Now you're thinking Tom Holland, but he's, he's not Spider-Man. And Tom Holland is this, this world-renowned historian. And um, he's having this conversation, because he's an atheist. He's having this conversation with this very powerful and intelligent Anglican bishop. And they're talking about Paul, the apostle. And in this conversation, uh, Tom Holland, he's he shocked as he's studying the Roman Empire, as he's writing this, this, this paper about Paul. He's shocked about how Paul, especially Paul's letters, have transformed the world. He's blown away by it. He's realizing that all of his, the narratives that he believed about Christianity are actually false. He begins to learn this because He's read so many books, and he's shocked by it, right? And this is what this, this atheist historian says. Paul's letters are like a depth charge underneath the fundament of, of our civilization, and they explode. They explode, and they lead uh, our civilization and us to pursue justice in this powerful way. It's radical, Right? It's radical. It transforms the way we see human beings. Here's this atheist saying this. Yeah, okay. And he's shocked by it. He's shocked. 
And the Anglican bishop, he's shocked that he's saying this. And I see, and I forget the, the bishop's name is very, very famous, and he's, he's watching Tom Holland. And I see the look on his face, and I'm like, I know exactly what you're thinking. He's like, oh, whoa, ooh, he's doing this, you know. And I, I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, if you continue that, you will run into the resurrected Jesus. If you stay doing that, Mr. Atheist Historian, you will run into the resurrected Jesus. Because if you open your heart, if you lay it all out there on the line, you will run into the resurrected Jesus. You will find out that your Redeemer lives and that he, he argues on your behalf as friend does with friend. I think that's what I take from Job. This is not about theodicy. This is about a relationship. So, uh, so the musicians are going to come up front and lead us in one last song. As we sing, you are invited to come forward, take the bread from the basket, and dip it in the juice, and eat it, and return to your seat. Once again, this is open to anyone who is saying yes to Jesus. So, uh, and then you also have cups at the table if you prefer. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness he humbled himself and carried the cross and love so
Amen. Amen. Now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord raise you up, raise his countenance upon you, and give you peace. Go in peace and stay for breakfast.